I am not an expert. I've never published a book or taught a class, but I love quilting, and I love talking about quilting. I make a lot of mistakes, but I like to think that sometimes I learn from them and get just a little bit better. If hearing about someone else's goofs and mess-ups makes you feel better about yours, then I've done my job. Join me now as we talk about quilting for the rest of us. Hey, I'm Sandy, and I'm a quilter, and welcome to episode... Oh, I think we will call this one episode 99, in which we talk books. But first, I have a little bit of a reminder for you. Don't forget about the 100th episode giveaway. Yes, the 100th episode of Quilting for the Rest of Us is imminently arriving sometime the end of this week, early next week, somewhere in there. Um, but in celebration of that, I am giving away wonderful things to three winners and I've collected the stack. I'm going to take pictures and post them on the blog if that makes a difference to you. Um, we're about halfway to my stated goal. We're actually over halfway to my stated goal of um, I'd love to have at least 100 comments um, and we are like I said better than halfway there already so make sure you get your name in for this giveaway. Um, you will go to the quiltingfortherestofus.blogspot.com blog and I'll post a link to this episode and just answer my question there. And I'm going to leave that blog post up for a little bit. I do have some Food Friday posts coming up, etc. towards the end of this week, but I won't post anything between now and then just so to, to leave that one blog post up there a little bit longer. Um, so don't forget the 100th episode giveaway. Now, I do, um, I've got some Sandy updates, and I've got an announcement I want to make, and then I've got some book reviews I'm going to share this week. Uh, as you might know, if you are an ongoing listener, uh, you know that last week I was on vacation. I did post a very, very short podcast from vacation. I was able to do that um, through my iPad, which I really <laughs> was, it took me a little bit to figure out how to do that because I had to download some new apps. I had to um, set up some stuff, but it did work. I just decided not to try to do that again that week simply because I really wanted to um, you know, be on vacation. So although I did a little tweeting here and there, for the most part, um, I didn't do much online. I read some blogs a little bit here and there as well, but mostly I was just sewing and reading and hanging out outside and hanging out with my daughter. So it was a really nice relaxing week, but I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. First, I have an announcement to make. I don't think I already made this announcement. I've had this notice on my desk for a while. I met a fabric artist while I was at the Ricky Tim seminar. It was one of those, um, you know, stairwell meetings. We were comparing notes on fabric we were looking at. And it turns out she's a fabric artist from Canada, and she's going to be having a show. And I wanted to make sure I announced that for all of our Canadian listeners who might be able to get to it. Her name is Colleen Morris-Wilson, and she's going to have a show at the Art Scene in Atrium Gallery in the city of Ottawa, Canada. And the show will run October 27th to November 26th. And I think they're going to be having, I believe it's called in Canada, Vernissage, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, an opening night sort of reception. Um, I think on October 27th, I'm not as positive about that, but I do remember talking with her about that a little bit. But the, the show itself will run October 27th to November 26th. And the art scene, the Atrium Gallery, is at Ben Franklin Place. That's 101 Centerpoint Drive. For those of you who aren't Canadian and might be going up there, center is spelled C-E-N-T-R-E, point, P-O-I-N-T-E, all one word, drive. Um, and I will be posting a link to the Atrium website 
in the show notes this episode so that you can get more information about that. Um, I've seen a couple of pictures of her work. It's it's really neat stuff, and I wish I could get up to Ottawa. Unfortunately, I'm traveling quite a bit this fall already, so I probably won't be able to get there. But hopefully some of my Canadian listeners will be able to and report back in if you do get to. So, Sandy update. Like I said, my vacation was really, really nice. Um, our family cottage, it's, as I said in my very, very short 98 and a half episode last week, uh, it's the family that I grew up in, my family of birth, our cottage, and it was built before I was born, I think maybe even the summer I was born, and uh, basically it's, we have three buildings on the property. There's the cottage proper, which my dad built by hand, <laughs> and uh, this was sort of his practice run before he built the house that I grew up in, and I think I've mentioned before, Dad, not a contractor, not an architect. He was a psych professor. He learned how to build things basically out of, you know, sort of growing up experience as boys in the, you know, 1930s and 40s tended to, I think, build more than what boys now build. Um, now they build it, you know, cyberly. <laughs> Back then they actually used hammer and nails. Uh, but in any case, he mostly learned out of reading books and things. That's why the way my dad did things. And so the cottage is um, very, very, very rustic, but still on a wonderful property. Uh, we also have a mobile home that was my grandmother's. My dad's mother lived there six months out of the year and then moved to Florida the other six months. Uh, she passed away in the early 90s, but the trailer is still there, and various of us have used it over the years. It has now sort of become where me and my family stay when we're up there. Uh, my sister and her uh, family and extended family stay in the cottage. And then the bunkhouse is another building that started out, it was always called the bunkhouse. There were technically bunks in there when I was little, but it was mostly a storage shed. And then as we got older and didn't need it so much for um, overflow and toy storage and stuff like that, my mom took it over as her quilt studio while she was up there. And she moved, we used to move up there end of school and we'd stay up there all summer. Well, my mom kept doing that even as we all got older and weren't able to be up there as much. Mom still moved up there um, every summer, even after dad passed away. And so that was her sewing studio. And now it is now that mom has passed away, that has now been turned into this really kind of cute little, I call it the studio apartment. <laughs> it's got two twin beds and then, um, you know, a little reading area. And then it's got, they just put in, my sister just put in an actual working toilet and a little sink. So it's even got its own little um, tiny little uh, powder room sort of in it. So that's a nice space too. So we've got all these various sleeping spaces. The trailer and the cottage are both, you know, 50 years old at this point and showing their age. And we're really, you know, every summer it's patchwork and trying to put stuff together. This year, my daughter was up there the week before me and she had painted the bathroom and in the trailer, and it looks so much better. I mean, it's it's just a Band-Aid. There's a lot more that needs to be done in the bathroom, but at least it looks a lot better. And so when I got up there, uh, we sort of redecorated. I bought new shower curtains and um, area rugs and all new bath towels and stuff. We have a problem with keeping things um, rodent-free up there during the winter. We pack stuff. You know, it's amazing what they can get into. We use plastic bins. They somehow figure out sometimes how to get into them. It's amazing how resourceful mice can be. Uh, so the first day and a half I was up there, really I spent kind of cleaning and getting things ready and organized. And 
I believe I tweeted somewhere in there that you can see the beauty of rental, you know, vacation rental, because somebody else has it all set up for you. Uh, but we had a really nice weekend week. My daughter and I were up there by ourselves for most of the week, and we have very similar rhythms. We are of my current married family, my husband and my two kids. My daughter and I are both the introverts, so we... Um, we really do our 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 sort of rhythms of the day match almost exactly so we both we both get up early but we both tend to like to just kind of be on our own in the mornings and so we'd even if we were sitting in the same room we'd both be just you know she'd have her tea I'd have my coffee she'd be on her computer I'd be reading a lot of days I'd go outside and read um for the first hour or so of the day and then I would do some sewing and she'd do some reading or writing or whatever. Again, you know, we're kind of in the same area, but we're just not really interacting a whole lot. We're just kind of doing our own thing. And then usually in the afternoon, we would swim or go for a hike or um, do something like that. We would kind of do something together and we always ate our meals together. And then um, in the evenings, we would play a game. And we had, oh, a banner game of Yahtzee. <laughs> One night I got three Yahtzees in one, and she got two. I think that was the first game. I got three and she got two. And then the second game, I got two and she got one. And, you know, I can go months playing Yahtzee with ever, without ever having a, um, getting an actual Yahtzee. So I don't know whether our dice were loaded or what, but it was kind of fun. Um, so that was kind of our, our cottage schedule. And then on uh, we spent one day, I think it was Wednesday, in Sackett's Harbor. If you've never been up in that neighborhood, um, Lake Ontario was actually a significant part of the War of um, 1812. Uh, there's a little museum there that you can watch with a video. And then there's also a separate museum across the street about the Seaway Trail. And the Seaway Trail goes, I think, all the way through the Great Lakes. I do know it's all the way up through where I live. We're all, we're right on the Seaway Trail here for Lake Ontario. So we went to that museum as well. Sackett's Harbor is a really cute little town. It could be more. It really could be more, but it's hard up there to keep any sort of shops or boutiques really going because you really only get tourists two months out of the year, you know, July and August. That's pretty much it. So you've got to have a business plan that keeps you afloat year-round, even though you're really only going to get tourist traffic for two months out of the year. Um, but we poked away around at a couple of shops. There's a wonderful boutique tea shop that we were both tea people, so we spent time there. And then we went to dinner together that night. And the, the place we had dinner at, Tin Pan Galley, if you're ever up in that neighborhood, very good uh, restaurant. And they mostly, what we really enjoyed about it, the food was good, you know, and the wait staff was good. But um, we were dining al fresco. They have this wonderful little bricked-in courtyard that's all sort of tree-covered and gardens around it and um, all brick. It's really pretty, and it was just gorgeous weather the day we were there. It was perfect, so you couldn't have asked for better. So we just said that was kind of my favorite day, I think, of the whole vacation. Had a really nice day there. Now, the next day, we decided to take our dogs for a hike on a hiking trail that my daughter had found um, online along the Black River. The Black River runs from Watertown up, I think, all the way up to somewhere in the Adirondacks. Um, but between the city of Watertown and the town of Black River, there's a paved asphalt trail along the side of the river. And so we decided we'd go exploring, and we took the dogs for a walk. And it was nice. The, the problem was you're not actually next to the river. I mean, you're next to the river, but it's there's... It's so tree-lined and so much undergrowth, you can't actually see the river most of the time. We And we hiked, it's a three-and-a-half-mile trail. We probably hiked about half of it. We we just went halfway and turned around and came back. Um, 
And we really only saw the river twice during that time. <laughs> the rest of the time you're just seeing trees. It was very pretty, but it was um, not very much changing scenery. It could be if we got up to the other end, the Black River end of it, it would, be, would have been a little more interesting. Um, but the dogs enjoyed being out for the walk. Unfortunately, we think that turned out to be a fateful walk for Doofus, for um, my golden retriever, whose real name, by the way, is Sam. <laughs> Somebody tweeted and said, could you just tell us his real name so I don't have to keep calling him Doofus? Well, his real name is Sam. Um, but, you know, given his Doofus status, wouldn't you know, it is very, very rare for dogs to get poison ivy. Somehow we think he figured out how to do it. Um, he is really down for the count and in bad shape and... Um, I've got a vet appointment for him today now that I'm home. Uh, we really think he ended up with poison ivy. He has a little long his snout, but then he has really, really something horrendous going on in his, shall we say, nether regions. So I've been giving him Benadryl. I bought a cone for his head to keep him from scratching at himself. I don't think the cone is quite big enough, unfortunately, because he can still reach certain parts of himself, so he's still been chewing a little bit. Um, but, you know, he's pretty good when we tell him to stop. He stops. Uh, I tried using some Caladrill that didn't really seem to, it just sort of disturbed him. And I tried some, using some anti-itch spray and that just sort of disturbed him. So I don't know if it stung a little bit when it first went on or what, but I decided to just leave that, you know, well enough alone, give him the Benadryl, put the cone on him, and then I'm going to get him into the vet today. So we'll see what's going on. When I got home on Sunday, I had my shipment from Joanne's waiting for me. I think I mentioned, I know I at least tweeted this, whether or not I mentioned it in a previous podcast. I bought two of those rolling cart organizers. I've been seeing, you know, a lot of people have posted pictures of them on Pinterest. A couple of people have posted in blogs. They're the ones with the multicolored drawers. They're actually kind of made for scrapbookers, I think. But I've been looking at these for a while in terms of organizing my scraps and embellishments. So I, and they were on 50% off sale right before I went out of town. So I went ahead and ordered a couple. Um, and I thought they might get to me before I left for vacation, but they did not. They came while I was gone. So I got those set up yesterday and then um, got everything organized. So I've got one has all my various yarns and cordings and buttons and beads and stuff that I use for embellishments. And then the other one, I've got all my fabric scraps organized through it. Um, and then, you know, it is it is pretty much all fabric scraps. There's one drawer that's got some organza and lace and things that I've collected to also use as embellishments. So I'm really pleased with those. Um, they're, you know, even though I took the measurements and I took my me measuring tape and I kind of held it up to the wall to kind of feel how big these were, somehow in my head I still thought they were going to be bigger, even though I knew what their measurements were. I thought they were going to be bigger. It's still, they're plenty big enough. They're just kind of, I'm glad I got them 50% off because I think if I had paid full price for the size that they are, I would have been a little concerned, but 50% um, off, I felt like, you know, this was a good deal. So very pleased with those. I will post a picture of that. Um, and then just to add to the excitement of yesterday, um, my husband was out pruning while I was sorting my scraps and embellishments and managed to almost prune his own hand off. <laughs> He cut right into himself with the pruning shears and he came running in the house and, you know, give me a band-aid, get me a band-aid. I'm looking at that thing saying there is no freaking way a band-aid's going to cover that. And I said, you know, I really thought he needed to go get stitches and he didn't want to go get stitches. He didn't want to go sit in the emergency room. So I finally talked him into coming, you know, that I would take him. And then I get, took him. We actually have an urgent care place down in the village that we had never been to before, but we said, well, we'll give it a shot. And they were open. And he was in and out of there within an hour. So it was really nice to have that there. And yes, he did get stitches. So he, he thanked me for talking him into going. Um, 
So that was just a little more extra uh, fun into yesterday. Although I wasn't worried. I mean, it wasn't like he was passing out from lack of blood or anything. He just cut a nice chunk off of the heel of his hand, basically. And, um, you know, I just brought my Kindle with me and I sat in the waiting room and got some more reading done. So that was nice. What else did I get done? I got a lot done during vacation, actually, even though it was a relaxed, you know, it was fun kind of stuff done. But I did get some stuff done. I finished my, I finished two craftsy classes while I was there, my stitch and stash, sorry, stitch and slash craft, uh, craftsy class and art quilting 101. Now, stitch and slash, I'm still finishing up the project for it. I'm hoping to have that done maybe today if I can um, get to it. The um, and I'll post pictures of it when it's done. The art quilting class, I decided not to do a specific project for it. You can if you want, you know, but even at that, it's kind of loosey-goosey. She doesn't reference the the project itself throughout. She just sort of gives suggestions. Hey, if you want to try doing this, here's what you can do. Um, so it's not really a project class. It is more principles and ideas and techniques and stuff. And so I was more watching that just straight through as, as videos rather than doing any particular exercises related to it. Um, I was working on other projects at the time that I was able to immediately put some of those learnings into place, which was nice, but I, I really enjoyed that one as well. So those are both craftsy classes that I would recommend, the Stitch and Slash with Carol Ann Wall. I think that's how you pronounce her name. And I do know um, Nitty AJ also was taking that class and she posted her project. And then Art Quilting 101 with Wendy Butler Burns. And now that I've got those two done, I've still got like five other classes I've bought over the last few months that I've got to work my way through. So I'm, I'm moving on to other ones. And then the main project I brought with me to work on, and as it turned out, the only one I really worked on while I was at the cottage was my mother's UFO. And this, I blogged about it. I think I talked about it a little bit in a previous episode. I don't remember. Um, this is one where I distinctly remember talking with her about this while she was planning it. She talked about wanting to do a blue and yellow quilt for the cottage. And then, so I knew that was going on. I had actually given her some blue and yellow fabric I had in my own stash at the time saying, hey, I was going to use this for something else. Didn't end up using it. If you can use it for this, you know, go ahead. And so after she passed away, I found a big zippered project bag with um, a bunch of blue and yellow fabrics and my fabric in it. And, you know, I recognized the one I'd given her. And then um, some EQ7 designs, actually a whole big pack. She had spent a lot of time designing, playing with different designs on this. There was a big file folder full. I mean, it had to have been, oh, 60, 70 pages of designs and then printed out foundation patterns as she was kind of testing out different ideas and things like that. Um, but then on the top of the project bag was the actual design she had chosen to do. She had most of the blocks done. I only had to do eight. And um, the ones I had to do were paper pieced. They were a foundation pieced pattern. She had one block done, which was clearly like a test block for her, but she didn't have any other foundations printed off for this. She had one that was smaller. So my first thing was, okay, well, I'll take the smaller one and I'll just do the math between her finished block and what I know her finished block size needs to be based on the other block she already had done and the smaller foundation pattern, and I'll just do the math and then blow up the smaller one for the size I need. Oh, and by the way, a piece of this was that, although I knew she had designed this in EQ, her computer had also crashed um, at shortly before, like a couple of months before she passed away, and she hadn't replaced all the files. So I didn't have any of her original EQ files anymore. Um, so I was just going based on this printout. 
So I tried, you know, during the week before I went on vacation, I tried blowing up the blog, couldn't get it to quite come out to be the right size, was having all sorts of issues with that. And finally, like two days before I went on vacation, I realized, well, wait a minute. If she did this in EQ7, I bet you anything, this particular foundation block is in the EQ7 library. So then I had to go about reinstalling EQ on my own computer, because I had also had a computer crash last fall. Reinstalled it. That's a story in and of itself, because of activation things and having to go to EQ and having them reactivate my code, all that kind of stuff. But finally got it reinstalled the night before I left, went into um, the the block library, and sure enough, I was able to find, yes, this, this foundation block I needed was in their block library, so I was able to print some off um, just out of EQ straight for the right size. So that was extraordinarily helpful. Um, and then I found fabrics in my own stash because in all the fabrics she had put away in this project bag, there weren't any that were the colors that needed to be for this particular block. So I, I found fabrics in my own stash. So mostly what I got done while I was at the cottage was doing those other blocks that I had to finish and then putting the center part together. Um, it's a little bit tricky because I don't know if you've ever tried to do a quilt that incorporates both paper-pieced blocks and traditionally-pieced, non-paper-pieced blocks. Um, I'm sorry, for those in England, paper-piecing tends to be uh, a phrase particularly for doing stuff by hand. It is not. I'm referring to what you might call foundation-piecing. Um, here in the U.S., we call it paper-piecing. Um, it's just where you have the printed design on the foundation and you're sewing the fabric to that printed design. When it, The thing about foundation piecing or paper piecing is that it's very accurate because it will be the size of that finished piece of paper. <laughs> you know, it's just that's the way it's going to work out. Um, traditionally pieced blocks, not so much. I mean, depending on the size of your seams, etc., etc. Now, I really think that in my mother's last few years of quilting, her eyes were not um, helping her, shall we say, because my mom did beautiful, beautiful, beautiful quilts. But when I was looking at some of these blocks and some of the pieces or projects of hers that I have finished on her behalf these last few years, some of her more recent projects, seams are kind of all over the place. And, and I know, you know, my mom wasn't always the most accurate person, but I know she was probably more accurate than that. But these, the the quilt that I'm trying to finish for her now, the non-paper-pieced blocks are log cabin blocks. Log cabin blocks are deceptively um, tricky. They look simple. They are, I think, considered a beginner's block, but the reality is they've got a boatload of seams, and if you don't have those seams accurate, your end result could be a half-inch difference in size, maybe even three-quarters of an inch difference in size from one block to the next. Um, Moms weren't that far off, but there were, I mean, there's several of these log cabin blocks that aren't the full size that they really need to be. And so I kind of went through, what do I do here? Do I trim some stuff down to size? I really was kind of stuck, though, because if I trimmed the foundation blocks down to size, I was going to be losing points all over the place. So I decided to err on the side of just trying to stretch those log cabin blocks as far as I could while I was sewing them down. And for the most part, I've been able to get away with that now. I still have three seams left, I think, to finish it. And uh, once I get that done, then the center will be done. It's not going to be altogether square. There's probably going to be a few places where it's a little puckery here and there. But you know what? I'm not going to sweat it. It will be done. And I'm going to have it um, 
probably custom quilted long, you know, take it to a long armor, have them custom quilt. I will apologize to them ahead of time. I'm sorry. I know this isn't going to be square. Do the best you can. Um, let's just see what we can get done with it. It's a, it is a very pretty design. It's not a colorway I would normally do now in, in this phase of my life, but I can really, it's a pretty one. And although I know my mom intended this for the cottage, I am certainly not going to, I might bring it to the cottage while I'm there, but it's not going to live up there because things, like I said, we have issues with rodents up there and this is far too nice a quilt um, to, to leave to the whims and, um, you know, Y4s of mice. Uh, but in any case, I do know I went through once I had the center you know pretty much done I was going then through back through the project bag and it's clear to me mom didn't have anything picked out yet for borders there was no fabric in there that works for borders and there was nothing that even indicated she'd even thought about using it for borders um, I think what she had in the project bag was just all the blue and yellow fabric she had in her stash she just kind of threw it in there for consideration um, most of it too small, wouldn't work, you know, just not the right colors, that kind of thing. So I am going to have to go to a quilt store and find some border fabric. It, you know, on the one hand, I don't feel like it should be too hard. I'm looking for blue and yellow of some sort, and blue and yellow hasn't entirely gone out of style as a color combination. But as we all know, well, maybe you don't know this yet. If you haven't been quilting for more than about three years, you may not have realized this yet, but color really, really changes over, shall we say, five-year periods, it becomes very hard to find the same blues, the same yellows, and even blues and yellows that even work together, because the whole, you know, you go from muddy to earthy to saturated to jewel tones, you know, that things go in and out of trend. So I'm a little bit worried that I'm not going to be able to find a fabric now. This project is not hugely old, um, but I would say it's probably at least eight to nine years, I think, from when mom probably first started it. So, you know, that's almost a decade in fabric life. That's that's a long time passing. <laughs> so so wish me luck on trying to find that. Like I said, I'm, I'm hoping to get out this afternoon to a quilt shop and, um, and look for that. Once I get that done, I, I haven't decided yet how many borders I'm going to do, whether I'm just going to do one border or whether I'm going to do an inner and outer border. There's some things about the design itself that make that a less simple de uh, decision than what it usually is. So again, I'm going to play it by ear. I'm going to bring the center with me to the quilt shop and just lay it out and see what my options are um, and hopefully find something that works, whether it be just a single border, which would kind of be my preference. I don't want it to be overly fussy. But if I end up finding a single border that would work, or a border fabric that would really work, but it really needs an inner border to kind of set it off, then I'll do that. Well, like I said, I just have to play that one by ear. Um, so that's what I, so quilting-wise, that's what I got done this week. It, it really felt good getting that done, and it'll feel better getting it actually finished, because that's been sitting on the floor of my computer room, that project bag, since Mom passed away, since we cleaned out the house. So... Um, It'll be nice having that done and knowing that, you know, Mom, finished your quilt for you. Um, reading list. I did a ton of reading while I was gone, and I just thought I would kind of very quickly, I'm not going to give full-out reviews, but just let you know kind of what I read and what I thought about it very, very briefly in case you're looking for books to add to your end-of-summer reading list. I finished The Help by Catherine Stockett. That's the one that they eventually made the movie out of. I actually did not have very high expectations going into it. There's a couple things about the genre that I wasn't sure I was going to like um, that I won't go into here. But as it turned out, 
I really, really did like it quite a bit. I've never seen the movie. I don't know that I intend to see the movie, um, but the way the movie was advertised made me think that the book, like I said, was going to have some aspects to it I wasn't going to really enjoy. Um, but I really did. It was very well written. So if you haven't read The Help yet, I would recommend that. Again, that's by Catherine Stockett. I also finished A Trick of the Light by Louise Penny. I might have actually finished that right before I left. I don't remember now. That's another one in the Inspector Gamache series. Um, as you know, if you've listened to this at all, I am a huge fan of Louise Penny's Inspector Gamache series. Huge fan. And unfortunately now I have caught up with her. She, um, I've now pre-ordered <laughs> the newest book in the series, which is coming out the end of this month. Um, I always get, I hate it when I actually catch up with an author because then I got to wait for the next book and I got to pray that they actually write the last book, the next book. I, uh, when I was in high school and college, I was a huge fantasy reader. I read a ton, a ton, a ton of fantasy and I got into some series. I don't remember now who it was, loved the series and then the author passed away in the middle of a trilogy. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 that can't happen. Um, so ever since then, I've actually been a little bit um, gun shy about starting a trilogy until all of them are available. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of weird. Anyway, um, Trick of the Light, Inspector Gamache series, Louise Penny, love them. If you have not read them and you like mysteries, love them. I read another book um, that was recommended to me, Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet by Jamie Ford. And this is a book that's set in um, 1940s, uh, I believe, San Francisco. And it's about Japanese internment camps in the U.S. when they um, rounded up Japanese American citizens and sent them into internment camps. And that was the main reason I read it was because I'm really interested in stories that are set in sort of historical circumstances so that I can get a feel for what it would have been like to live through that historical circumstance. Unfortunately, this book just did not do it for me. I, I just didn't, I mean, I didn't hate it. I didn't dislike it in a serious way. I just didn't like it um, particularly. So it kind of just gets a meh from me. Um, I read another installment in the Nell Sweeney mystery series, Death on Beacon Hill. Um, Nell Sweeney is the main character. Those are by P.B. Ryan. Um, I actually, I enjoy those books. They're, they're very mindless. They're, they're light. They're non-demanding. They're cozy mysteries. Um, they are set in the Boston area in, oh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Must be early 1900s. They've got cars. I believe they have cars. No, I'm sorry. They're running around in horse and buggies. I think it's very early 1900s. I'm sorry. I should have double checked that before I started talking about it. Um, again, they're, you know, they're enjoyable characters and, they're light mysteries. Um, there's nothing really gory or gruesome much going on. There's some really interesting character decisions she's made that make it, that set it apart a little bit from your run of the mill, um, kind of cozy mystery series. So I do enjoy those. I, I'm not as in love with them as I am the Inspector Gamache series, but they are enjoyable. So if you're looking for light mysteries, you might want to check out again PB. P is in Peter, B is a boy. I actually, it's, I think PB Ryan is actually a woman. I don't know what PB stands for. Uh, Ryan, R-Y-A-N, and it's the Nell Sweeney series. This particular book is Death on Beacon Hill. I think that's number three, I think I'm up to. Um, then I read The Cat, The Quilt, and The Corpse, which is, I think the series is called a Cats in Trouble series, and this is by Leanne Sweeney. This was one that had been, you know, highly rated by a bunch of people on Goodreads. 
Um, eh. <laughs> Again, just couldn't really get into it. Um, and by the way, most of these books I have posted reviews of on Goodreads where I go into a little more detail. So if you're on Goodreads and interested, you can check it out. Um, that was the first book in that series. Normally I give an author a whole lot of rope in the first book in a series because it's taking them a while to get into their characters and really kind of create the setting. And it's it's often that I don't particularly like the first book in a series as much as I like future books. But there's got to be something in that first book that makes me want to read future books in the series. And I just, I don't think I got that out of this particular book. So I, I wasn't really thrilled by it. If you are like a seriously rabid cat person, you might like it more. I like cats. I've owned cats. Um, I am a cat person and a dog person. And I mean, I just like animals. Um, but I just, not enough to really make that be my primary reason for reading a book, I guess. <laughs> Even, you know, it's both for cat lovers and the quilting market, because the main character is um, a cat lover and a quilter. But even the, the quilting part of it, you know, even that didn't really grab me for reading it more. So I, and that's not something, you know, again, I don't really recommend the series, but I also, there's no accounting for taste. You might love it. And I just, it didn't do it for me. And you might try reading Inspector Gamache and not see why I'm so into it. So, you know, you never know. Um, another book I read was The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie, which is a Flavia de Luz series by Alan Bradley. This one um, Tanisha had reviewed on her podcast a long time ago, long time ago, probably a year ago now. She re reviewed this one because it was on my Goodreads to read list for a long time. I was finally able to get it through the library as an ebook on my Kindle and read it. And it was cute. I might, I could see myself maybe reading future books in the series. The the thing that I had problems connecting with, and I vaguely remember that Tanisha may have mentioned this, um, it's set in 1950s England, and there's a lot of pop culture references to what I can only assume are 1950s England things. And I didn't get most of them. And so it kind of created this sort of distance between me and the humor or the the fun of the book is because I, I just wasn't understanding most of what it was reference, referencing. Um, I do like the main character. Flavia um, is a very intelligent 11-year-old girl. I really appreciate that there's a book that the main character is a very intelligent 11-year-old girl. I really enjoy that. Um, the book itself did not grab me as much as I'd hoped, but again, I'm this one I am much more willing to say, yeah, I might read future books in the series to see as the characters develop whether I get more engaged. Another book I read was Chicken Boy by Frances Dowell, our very own Frances Dowell of Off Kilter Quilt Podcast. I have read several of her other books, but I've decided I, I, I've i read more recent books and I really wanted to kind of go back and read some of her um, previous books. And I loved Chicken Boy. And that's not just because I like Frances herself. I do like Frances and I like her podcast quite a bit. But if I'd read her book and didn't like her book, I just wouldn't mention that I'd read it. <laughs> so the fact that I'm actually saying I really, really, really liked this book means I'm not saying that just because I like Frances. Um, I, I thought it was very good. It is young adult. I mean, it's written for, um, I believe Amazon put it at fourth grade through seventh grade <laughs> range, somewhere in there. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very good. So if you have not yet read Chicken Boy by Francis Dowell, I would highly recommend it. I also read The Ties That Bind by Marie Bostwick, which was her most recent book. I think it was released in April or May this past year in the Cobble Court series. Um, I like the series. You know, they're not earth shattering, but I do like the series. 
Um, I liked this book, again, quite a bit. The characters are very good. It, uh, each time she focuses on different characters, although the same characters are still all there. So you still feel like you're with your old friends, but you're kind of getting to know somebody new a little bit more. Um, I did have a, a personal connection with the book because one of the, the new characters that she brought in is a woman pastor. And of course, I'm a woman pastor. So I was I very much connected with that. There were some aspects of that part of the story that were a little unrealistic, but, you know, I give, you know, she's fiction. She's trying to make a happy ending. I will buy that. <laughs> it's just there's some things that went remarkably easily for this young woman pastor that I know in your average congregation would not have gone that easily. Um, that being said, in the ideal world, I can say, yeah, raw, that should happen. That should be the answer. So, um, but in that respect, I did enjoy the book. Um, you know, I've, I've liked all of her series. I thought some of her other books dealt with, um, issues. I think I talked in a previous episode, probably a long time ago now, about one of her previous books in the series that deals with the issue of domestic violence, and I thought dealt with it very, very well. Um, this is not dealing with kind of big, um, well, I mean, it still deals with life issues. Um, I guess I shouldn't say it doesn't deal with big issues. It does still deal with big life issues. Um, so it, again, if you're looking for women's fiction, you know, the quilting still plays a part in it, but it's not by any means kind of the primary part of this book. I I did enjoy it. I like those series. So again, that's The Ties That Bind by Marie Bostwick. I am currently reading Falling to Pieces, A Quilt Shop Murder. This is a Shipshawana Amish mystery number one, the first book in the series by Vanetta Chapman. I think I basically like this. I could see myself reading more in this series. Um, the, the Amish culture is an interesting part of it. Um, it's it's the, the melding between Amish and English, as they call them. And I've been to Shipshawana, so it's kind of fun to, to read a book that's set in a place I've been. Although the way she describes it, I'm like, geez, that's not what I remember it as. I mean, she's clearly fictionalized the, the town as well. Um, the, the murder's plot itself is interesting. Um, could be a little bit more engaging, but it's not bad. And the characters are fun. So I, I am, I'm enjoying that more the further into it I get. It's still not... You know, still not up there with Inspector Gamache, I have to say. That's my benchmark <laughs> for murder mysteries, I guess. Um, but it is, you know, in terms of a nice, cozy mystery, it's a fun summer read. So again, that's Falling to Pieces, A Quilt Shop Murder, the Shipshawana Amish Mystery Series by Vanetta Chapman. And I finally today just downloaded Eat, Pray, Love to my Kindle from the library. Um, I'm reading this on a recommendation of a friend. I'm I have some concerns. I mean, there's reasons why I haven't read it <laughs> yet. So I'm hoping that I'm proven wrong. Um, and if I'm not, I'll just write a very honest review on Goodreads. So that's my reading list. Um, if you're looking for things to uh, to uh, read for your end of the summer. I do have a couple of quilting books. I want to just, I'm going to mention these more quickly than I'd planned on, but I've gotten, some of these are books I got out of the library a long time ago and wrote up my reviews and I just haven't had an episode to share them in, so I'll do that. But first, a book I ordered, um, and I don't even remember how I found out about this one. It must have been just through, you know, when I was on Amazon, maybe in one of those, you know, if you liked this book, you'll like these. It's called The Black Family Dinner Quilt Cookbook Health Conscious Recipes and Food Memories with Dorothy Height and the National Council of Negro Women. And this was published in 1993. Um, it's a spiral bound book. It is primarily a cookbook, lots and lots of recipes. And it's got things like crispy oven fried fish and crispy oven fried fish fingers, apple orchard park, pork chops. I'm just opened up to the main dishes thing. Um, it gives nutritional information on most 
if not all of the recipes, I guess all of the recipes. Um, and so in that respect, it's, it's very good. And it also has little stories in the sidebars of memories of Dr. Height and um, Mary, I think her name is Mary Bethune. She's keeps, she's mostly referred to as Mrs. Bethune. And, um, you know, the beginnings of the National Council of Negro Women and some of the early um, civil rights movement kinds of things. Uh, it's it, in that respect, it's a wonderful historical document. It is, there are pictures of quilts in it that have to do with African-American history, with the National Council of Negro Women, um, with some of the folks that are in this. Unfortunately, my one disappointment in the book is that all of the pictures are black and white, and most of the quilt pictures aren't pictures, they're drawings thereof. And so, you know, if you're looking for a quilt book, this is not if. If you're looking for a cookbook with benefits, <laughs> I guess as it would be this is a good book I, I do enjoy it from like I said from a historical perspective um, I recognize some of the names in it I'm not fully up on all the history and all the people that they talk about so I'm looking at it as good learning experience from that too but again that's the black family dinner quilt cookbook uh, with Dorothy Height and the National Council of Negro Women published in 1993 which means now you're probably getting it mostly used through Amazon um, the Quilters Hall of Fame, 42 Masters Who Have Shaped Our Art, edited by Mary Kay Waldvogel, or Waldvogel, Rosalind Webster Perry, and Marianne Ann Montgomery, is published by Voyager Press 2011. I got this one out of my library. It's stories of inductees into the Quilters Hall of Fame. Um, the Quilters Hall of Fame was founded in 1979 by Hazel Carter. Now, Hazel, if you read Quilters Newsletter, you're probably familiar with that name. She shows up periodically referenced in that um, magazine. She founded Quilters Unlimited of Northern Virginia in 1972, and that um, eventually became a huge guild. And then out of that, she founded in 1978 the, Quil the Continental Quilting Congress, and that was one of the earliest quilt conferences held in a hotel setting, as it says. In other words, it's sort of the precedence to, um, you know, Houston and Paducah and all the big quilt conferences now. And the Continental Quilting Congress continued for 13 years. Ash, and then the book says, thinking about feedback she'd received from the first Continental Quilting Congress, she became aware of the need to educate quilters about their quilting heritage, and the Quilters Hall of Fame was born. Quote, the Quilters Hall of Fame has been established to recognize the people behind the quilting renaissance, to pay tribute to their accomplishments, and thereby establish documentation of an important part of quilting history. Um, and a little bit later, again, quote, honorees are not necessarily quilters, but include authors, curators, collectors, editors, historians, researchers, and quilt artists from around the U.S. and United Kingdom. A selection committee reviews nominations entered by the public and then submits its choices to the board of directors for approval. There is actually a physical um, location now in Indiana, Marion, Indiana. Um, was renovated and opened in 2004. There's exhibits there. You can learn more about honorees. And there's a website, quiltershalloffame.net. And I'll make sure I put the link on the show notes of this episode. The book itself includes some introductory material about the history of the Hilters, uh, Quilters Hall of Fame, Marie Webster House, where it's now housed, um, Hazel Carter herself. But then it's mostly the stories of the Hall of Fame honorees. There's a nice mix of traditional art and contemporary quilts. There aren't, however, at this stage in this book, anyway, there aren't any modern quilters, but that's because they haven't been around quite long enough yet. On the other hand, 
you also remember that people have to nominate people um, in order to be considered. So if you want to see a certain style of quilting, then nominate those quilters. The book doesn't lay out a certain set of criteria for who gets inducted, and it would be hard to really have a bullet point list when you're looking at quilt makers, editors, curators, historians, collectors, and so forth. I mean, there's such a wide range. Um, it's simply that they're really looking at those who have contributed significantly to the world of quilting, the history of quilting, that kind of thing. There is a nomination form on the website of the Quilters Hall of Fame. They induct one person each year, um, normally. And then with your nomination form, you're also supposed to include a um, CV or resume of the nominee and at least two, but no more than 10 letters of recommendation. You make six copies of all of it and you mail it to the Quilters Hall of Fame no later than September 1st of each year. And there is more information on the nomination form. So again, if you want particular styles of quilting or particular quilters to be nominated, do the work. Make sure you get them nominated. Um, now, in terms of the book itself, again, I didn't read through every essay word for word, but I really did enjoy being able to skim through history. And it certainly broadened my perspective on the quilting world itself, who contributes. In other words, you know, you tend to think, well, obviously quilters, but not just quilters. Those who collect, document, research, educate, and so forth are just as important to keeping up quilting heritage as the people making them quilts themselves. I do wish that there were more people of color represented in the inductees. Um, my guess is, again, that that has to do with who's being nominated. So get out there and nominate people. That's kind of my push. I don't, you know, offhand, I'm not thinking I'm going to nominate anybody this year, but I'll certainly keep it in mind. Um, so again, if you're looking at nominating somebody, go to www.quiltershalloffame.net. But the book itself, again, that's the Quilters Hall of Fame, 42 Masters Who Have Shaped Our Art, um, published in 2011. I did enjoy reading through it. I thought it was a good book. The other book I had gotten out of the library was Quilt National 2011, The Best of Contemporary Quilts, and this was published by Lark Crafts, also 2011. Quilt National was also launched in 1979. A whole lot going on in the late 70s there in the quilt world. Um, it is found. It was founded as a showcase for what's now termed art quilts. Um, it's in the, the gallery space is now in a rehabbed dairy barn in Athens, Ohio. It's um, become the Dairy Barn Art Center. It's this huge gallery space. It includes shops, offices, and they do art classes, community events, etc. They also have Bead International there. Quilt National itself is a juried biennial ex exhibition. That's every two years. And the introduction of to this book explains the process by which jurors are chosen and then by which the exhibitors are chosen. And I really appreciated that they actually went into the process about how the, jur the jurors themselves are chosen too. Um, because a lot of times you read about, well, how do you get your stuff in, but you don't know how do they choose who's making the decisions about who gets in. So that was an interesting part of it for me as well. Um, one point here that they make that I wanted to lift up, they say a poor photograph is an almost automatic rejection in the early rounds because the jurors are sifting through about 1,500 entries to choose a final 85, and they really only have about 10 seconds to view the image and make an initial judgment. So they really push hard that if you're going to enter a quilt in a show, make sure you've got a really good photograph of it. And there are books and resources out there for how to make sure you've got a good photograph of your quilt for um, submission. So make sure you do your research on that. Um, this book is about the 2011 Quilt National Show. 
Each uh, page it has an image of the quilt, the maker, the title, a little bit about the techniques involved in the quilt, and then the artist statement. It looks basically like the information that you see hanging next to the quilt in the quilt show. That's pretty much what's in this book. Um, I enjoyed seeing the images of the quilts as always, and I could see making a collection of the books. I, there's a few more that I found online. They published in 2011, 2009, 2007, and 2003. Those were the ones I found. There may be others. So it would be interesting to, you know, start back to one of the first books they published and review the development over time of what ends up in Quilt National. Um, so that's another very good book that I'd highly recommend. Um, I do have some listener comments. Let me quickly pull those up. Okay, the first one, um, Noni, <laughs> sorry, Noni contacts me under so many different names. I also have to kind of go back and look at, okay, this is not this person, this is Noni. Um, she was asking me, she had emailed me a while back and asked whether um, Color Tuesday, Total Color Tuesday is going to come back. And yes, it is. I just um, have had to kind of get the rest of my life pulled back together after being gone from work and now being gone on vacation. I will be bringing it back um, probably next week. I can probably get to that sometime this week, especially because I've got all this new fabric now. So I've had an injection of new colors. And so um, make sure if you're not familiar with Total Color Tuesday, go to my quiltingfortherestofus.blogspot.com and just uh, go backwards in time. You'll find Total Color Tuesday posts. And each week that I post a different color scheme and, and my own playing with that color scheme, I invite everybody else to link up their own blogs to it. And a lot of folks have been doing that. So make sure you go check out their blogs as well. It's a lot of fun. I got a wonderful email from Rose in the UK, and she is a new listener, but she managed to blast through all 90 <laughs> previous episodes in a few weeks while she was hand quilting. So God bless you, Rose, and I'm glad you didn't go screaming for the sheets, the, the sheets, <laughs> screaming for the streets after the first 10 episodes or so. Um, she posted, she sent me a picture of her first ever quilt that she was working on and hand quilted it. It's very cute. Um, and she also pointed me in the direction of a blog by Elaine Lipson, who actually I believe is a knitter. I don't remember. She's a textile artist of some sort. And she posted in 2008 on her blog, a blog that a post that I'd never seen before I started my own slow quilt movement. She calls it the Slow Cloth Manifesto, and she actually um, has... 10 points to her slow cloth manifesto, most of which are exactly what I've been talking about. Um, so if I think of it, I will try to post a link to that blog post as well. Um, it's really good reading. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much, Rose. Um, I heard from Maureen on the uh, blog post about wonderful inspiration in which I picture, posted pictures from Carol Fielding in Austin, Texas of her quilts. And Maureen said, I enjoyed just contemplating them and allowing each one to speak to me without knowing their history, which is a wonderful comment, Maureen. Thank you so much. And Sarah um, was saying that she loves the labyrinth with log cabin background, which is also one of my favorites. Sarah, I really appreciated that one as well. And uh, Sarah, I will get back to you about your other questions that you were asking me. She was talking to me particularly about Austin itself. Um, Pat posted a comment on my Ricky Tim's Super Seminar report, and she said she had attended the one in Baton Rouge in um, January. She says, the previous year I had gone on an African trip with Ricky and Alex as celebs, not for teaching who wants to sew when the safari beckons. So when they came close to home, I had to go. And Pat, I want to hear more about that African trip. That sounds really, really wonderful. 
Um, she says she agrees that the syllabus is packed with a yard. Uh, is, <laughs> I'm sorry, I was skipping down to read the next line too. The syllabus is packed with info, and in Africa, Ricky gave each traveler a yard of his hand-dyed fabric. I used some to make a wall hanging, which I call my $8,000 piece, because that was the price of the trip. Um, by the way, Pat, I need to see a picture of that wall hanging, too. So thank you for that. A safari would be wonderful, no matter who I'm doing it, doing it with, but doing it with a bunch of quilters would be extra fun. Lindy, um, I had posted blog photo, a blog post with all the photos to go with episode 98 with all my various fabric purchases, etc. And Lindy says, uh, those South African fabrics are just wonderful. I've never seen anything like it, and I can't wait to see what you come up with to make. And I don't know that, like I think I said in a previous podcast, I don't think I'm going to make a single project using all of them. I think they're going to find their way into a variety of projects. Lori also loved the colors and textures of those fabrics. And, oh, okay, on one of my, my last uh, CSA Week 8 report, the my food blog, Food Friday, um, I had posted about how I ended up eating an entire watermelon by myself pretty much over the week. And um, Bibliotecaria says, some of us adore watermelon. In fact, during this season of the year, I get a big one a week at the farmer's market and eat it off it every day for almost the whole week. I will do this as long as they last. Um I really enjoyed it. It was a great watermelon. Had I gotten another one the following week, which I did not, but had I done it, I was starting to look up things like watermelon soups and such. Um, Z Any Mouse posted on my blog about Baby Quilt Finished and Delivered that she loved the off-center design, and I particularly liked that too. I thought it was very cute. Um, Eileen thought it was a beautiful family, and it is, that went the that got the quilt. Um, Cindy asked if I could post a picture of the baby quilt that I had finished, and I I have since you posted <laughs> the question. That was she um, left a comment on a post to episode ninety eight, and I hadn't yet posted a picture of the quilt then, but I have since I believe so. Um, however, she also asked if I could post a picture of the gift that I received, the notepad with the cover. And you're right, I have not done that yet, so I will try to get to that sometime this week. And Tori. Um, said, I'm so glad my stories make you smile. The South African fabric picks made me smile, but not as much as the ones from the church. Um, and she was letting me know that she was going to be meeting Francis for breakfast um, in North Carolina soon. And she has since done that. And I know that because I've seen pictures on Francis's blog of that meeting. So Tori, I hope you had a great time with um, Francis. And I want to hear about it from either of you. <laughs> Actually, I'm a little behind in podcasts. I, I was able to update all my podcasts before I left, but I was not able to update while I was there. Um, so I'm, I've got to update today and catch up with folks who posted while I was gone. So those are the only listener comments I have specific to anything other than my 100th episode giveaway. I've gotten a ton of comments so far. Like I said, I'm more than halfway there. And people are doing a wonderful job. Oh, I'm sorry. I also have an episode, a comment from Marissa on episode 98. That one got buried in my other um, things. She also appreciates the colors and textures. So thank you very much, Marissa, for that. Um, but I'm getting really wonderful comments on the, the 100th episode giveaway. People are being very, very creative. So I'm having a lot of fun reading your responses. So keep commenting. I'm, I'm waiting for more on that one. You've got another week to come in with your comments on the 100th episode giveaway. Remember, the cutoff is August 26th. So that's it for this episode. This is a long one because I had a lot to catch up on. But um, 
I had, you know, again, it's nice to be back from vacation. It's technically I'm still on vacation today, even though I'm spending part of it in the vet store or in the vet shop. Vet in the vet. Let me just end the sentence there. <laughs> I'm still clearly mentally on vacation. In any case, um, you know how to get hold of me should you so want to, and I hope you want to. You can email me at sandyquilts at gmail.com, sandy with a Y, quilts with a Z. You can follow my blog. You can follow me on Twitter, Pinterest, Goodreads, um, Stitch Talk, Seamed Up, Tom Spoolery, Google Plus, all of those places. I'm Sandy with a Y, quilts with a Z. And you can like the Quilting for the Rest of Us group on Facebook. You can join the Quilting for the Rest of Us group in Flickr. You can join the Quilting for the Rest of Us group in Seamed Up when the groups come back. You can also join the Big Tent Quiltcast Supergroup and then join the Quilting for the Rest of Us subgroup there. And you can join the Quilting for the Rest of Us Kiva team and do good. And you will find links for all of those things in one place. So this is all you really have to remember at www.quiltingfortherestofus.com. And until next time, go get your quilty on. Quilting for the Rest of Us is dedicated to Shirley. Love you, Mom. Thank you.